talking Dice Masters, the beauty of the underlying mechanics, the hidden complexities and the strategy, tactics, and decisions of competitive play. If you're just starting the game or have been here since the first set, hopefully you'll find something in this show that'll do you some good. So shake up your bag, reconnoiter your opponent, and get ready to roll. Hey, welcome back, Ahendinia, to a very special episode of Rollin' Thunder. Today, we're taking the chance to do one of our favorite things, which is to salute two of the all-time heroes of the Dice Masters community. That's right. It's Hall of Fame time. Indeed. You may have noticed that Lucan is back here in the room with me, back from Berlin for the Christmas break. How's it going over there? Things are good. Things are good. I like Berlin. All right. It's Lorschen Leschnerotti Show. Not well? Yeah, that's enough of that. Then let's get to it. Fire away. Those of you who've been following the show probably know where we're going with this because we've already said the rules, right, Lucan? Every season we ask our guests to nominate someone for the Hall of Fame. And then, as we said, we count up those nominations and we make an induction. And today is the day we are finally doing that. The final result of those ballots has been tallied. And for those of you following along, you probably know where we're going with this because... We're bringing back someone who was on our show once before, Season 1, Episode 7, if you want to go back and listen to an excellent episode from the past. Which you can find at www.rollandthunder.xyz forward slash 107 for Season 1, Episode 7. Is that right? That's correct. Okay, cool. So tonight on the show, we have with us the expert of experts, the sage of savants, a man who puts the cerebellum in cerebro, a founding member of the Dice Coalition, the man who created the Reserve Pool Wiki database of cards itself, a top four finisher at the Portland WKO in 2015, the winner of the November 2016 25-person Portland WKO, a top 20 finisher in the 2017 U.S. National championships, a top eight quarterfinalist in the 2017 World Championships, and the main judge at the 2018 U.S. National Championships, a master of mechanics and the connoisseur of code for the game, so much so that you might say he literally wrote one of the rule books. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you our inductee to this year's Dice Masters Hall of Fame, the man who ringed out the bards, the Pontiff of Portland, Mr. Paul Kushner. Paul, welcome back to Rolling Thunder, and congratulations. Thank you. It sounds so much better when you list it all out like that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as you can hear from just what I'm saying, you're a man of multiple, multiple talents and gifts, honestly, and... This is a great opportunity for us to tip our proverbial hat from all of the Dice Masters community. I mean, so many people mentioned your name across the seasons that we've been doing this now, saying, hey, I'd like to nominate Paul. And there was this period of time where you were kind of half in the game and half out, and we weren't really sure if you qualified for the... Hall of Fame title requirements. Yeah, yeah. the, the retirement requirements of the Hall of Fame. It's so much so that we reached out to you. So... First of all, we just want to say thank you for all that you've done for the community. I mean, what what we touched on there was just actually just a small sampling of all the stuff you've done. I mean, Nick Wally said at one point that you were like the Beetlejuice of Dice Masters, that if anybody had a ruling question and mentioned your name on Discord, you would appear out of the ether to, to adjudicate. <laughs> so so thank you, first of all. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that I could help. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> 
So first of all, let's get back and, and talk about what, what brought you into Dice Masters to begin with. Part of it is just appreciating, you know, the Marvel IP, which was the original one that it started with. It was, I had heard, I'm a, I'm a big board gamer. I have a entirely too large collection of board games taking up space in my room. Right. And I'd heard a lot about the game and it was gaining a lot of buzz. I'd never really gotten into a collectible game before. I was very hesitant in that sense. But at the time, the price point was a dollar a pack. And I was, you know, I can afford a pack for a dollar and, you know, <laughs> a few like that. And <laughs> that quickly became more than a pack or two at a time. But that price point was still uh, very appealing quite a long time into the game. Got it. So it was, was Marvel. You were a Marvel guy originally. What, what, out of curiosity, what, what titles were you interested in as a reader? Oh, man, I couldn't even say. I've never really kept up with the comic books. I usually will wait for the trade paperbacks to come out and uh, read them that way. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, <laughs> uh, probably X-Men. Uh, I was a big fan of the original X-Men animated series, which I've noticed is experiencing a resurgence at the moment. Yeah. Uh, so that's always uh, kind of cool to see. Yeah, it's interesting to see how many people, you know, I'm, I'm probably a little older than you, so... I was a little bit before the curve, but it's interesting to hear how many people have been brought into the fold through the animated series, both Marvel and DC, for that matter. It's it's, it's interesting to note that. I mean, I'm I'm you know back from the Chris Claremont days and even before that the original Hulk days, but it's, it's worthy of note. Like even Andy England of the Ministry of Dice, you know, talks about the. X-Men series as being sort of one of his touchstones of drawing him in, like that's what he knows the game from. So that's cool. All right. Well, you know, it, it seems to us that your unique talents and abilities have kind of coalesced into this image of you as the ultimate arbitrator of Dice Masters. But we wanted to kind of break that down a little bit, because not only are you good at understanding and writing rules in gaming, which are two different skill sets, by the way. But you are extraordinarily capable of communicating the rules and rulings to people in a manner that people can accept. I mean, a lot of people are good, quote, rules lawyers, but they may not be good at people. At communicating <laughs> <Yeah>. those decisions. <laughs> right. yeah. And you're excellent at that. You know, even if people disagree with the rulings, I think it's fair to say they understand and appreciate your reasoning. So first off, do you consider yourself what people would call a rules lawyer and, you know, in air quotes? And and have you always been good at, at the fine details if if yes? Um, I would probably say yes. I, I I don't know that I would identify myself as that because it has a very negative connotation typically. <laughs> Maybe, um, yeah. But but yes, I, you know, I've, I have a I have a good memory and, you know, I've always kind of really liked digging into the, the rules of the game and figuring out how it works, what makes it work, what the designer was thinking when they were trying to go through this, the, the intent of the rules, because the rules are really just a framework for how to enjoy the game that the game designer wants you to enjoy. So I've tried to kind of approach it from that perspective of this is what the experience they're trying to bring you. And the rules are a, a way to get to that experience. That is really cool. I like the fact that in both points, you've, you've kind of reframed my question in a positive light, which kind of shed some light on, on the way that you've written the question. Or? Well, yeah, maybe. Well, right. just I mean, just in general, maybe you're thinking, you know, which is what I'm trying to get oh, at, yeah. here, you know, it, which is 
the rules are there to make things more fun. You know, they're not there to like cramp your style. Ultimately, they're try. They're there. I, I like the way you're thinking. They're there to kind of organize the fun that what the game was designed. You know, ultimately, this is a game, right? And it's supposed to be fun. So I, I think that's cool. You know, a lot of times people think of the rules as the thing that it's putting the brakes on the fun and, and actually it's not that at all right yeah people <laughs> look at it as a restrictive thing but, right you know the the restrictions are what breeds creativity and you know you you want to try to especially with a competitive game like this where people are approaching it from multiple different perspectives is you know the the rules are the framework to to allow them to be creative and to come up with things within that framework that are creative and unique and strong within the confines of the game. I mean, and it's, it's also further testament to that point. I'd say the time when you see the least satisfaction with the game is when there is a lack of clarity on the way that something works. That's when you see the, the arguments break out at the table or something. The, the game is very much at its best when everything is very clear. Yeah, know, the and, community too. And I and I also like the idea that that restrictions breed creativity. I mean, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, as they say. Or what's the um, other? There's another. Well, there's a very famous example, arguably J.S. Bach's greatest work, the Goldberg Variations. It's a set of thirty variations, which were written on like the most strict rules. Some people say it's a miracle that he was able to even write thirty variations on such a strict set of rules. But it's super diverse and super colorful, and it's because it's a strict game plan it was able to breed such creativity. And so when you expand it to such a diverse set of rules like Dice Masters with so many complicated interactions, this is just multiplied, you know? Yeah, it's interesting. They always say that the greatest challenge to the writer is just that blank page. But if you give them some restrictions or some, you know, limitations, then suddenly the imagination flows, right? And, and maybe that's what you're trying to get at here. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I'd say that's a, that's a good example of that of that concept yes okay cool well here, here's another kind of negatively phrased question that maybe you can put a positive spin on it for us or, or for, for, for the record we do not mean any of this in a negative way I, I, <laughs> yeah, at least true. to me it had not occurred to to me that rules lawyer has a negative connotation to it but now that you mention it yes i can see that it may yeah um, yeah well the other phrase the other kind of truism that people say i don't know if it's even a truism but they say no good deed goes unpunished you know and certain Certainly from the outside, being a Dice Masters judge, especially at large tournaments from, from, from the outside, looks like it might be a thankless job. W- what drew you to thinking about volunteering to be a judge, especially at these large tournaments, and, and what do you think you got out of it? Well, as you know, it was you listed the the, the many uh, titles that I've held. <laughs> the the first time that I went to the Origins, the the National and World Championships there, it was as a player, and I had won a WKO and earned my spot there. Never really intended actually on going because obviously I live on the other side of the country, mm-hmm. but I actually do have family in Ohio, and it worked out that I was able to kind of have a come to Origins, see my family, and you know, had that experience and I loved it. It was a blast actually being able to meet up with all of these other Dice Masters community of people in person. And I wasn't really ever expecting to win, but you know, I, I was there for having fun and just enjoying it. And I placed much higher than I thought that I would. And I enjoyed that. And honestly, I don't know that I would have ever been able to do that well again. So (laughs) um, (laughs) in the future, um, they had asked me, you know, if I might be interested in in judging because the the person they had wasn't going to be able to come. And by that point, obviously, I'd kind of built up 
a reputation for for knowing the rules very well and being able to make interpretations on them. And so they asked if I was interested. And quite honestly, it was a way to be able to be enmeshed in the community in that setting without having the the stress or pressure of having to have a good team and play well because there was no pressure because I wasn't going to compete. I was just (laughs) there to to have fun and, and be with the community of people and again, not have that pressure. And I was still able to play some pickup games, some drafting, which is, you know, a lot of the fun anyway of getting stuff and seeing how it goes. So I was able to to still be able to enjoy that without having to worry about the large tournament, how I was going to do anything like that. Yeah, got it, got it. And, and certainly your contribution has been well appreciated. You can correct my memory if it is failing me here, but like before you became a volunteer for WizKid, you'd have the rules debate on Discord or whatever, where or wherever, and you know, all the different ideas would be bouncing around the chat room. And then you would come in, you'd offer your two cents, and that would quiet most of the people, because most of the people respected the word of Paul Kushner, but some people would still have their opinion. But when you took on the job as a a judge and writer of rulebook as a volunteer, I I don't see that as much anymore. When you say, here's my interpretation, the room is like, okay, the the word of God is here, he has spoken, (laughs) and the rule is that this is the interaction with the out-of-play area, or whatever you know right right and 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 did you think i guess the the question in that is do you think having literally written one of the rule books that that imprimatur finally gave you like a, a more authoritative like don't, authoritative. authoritarian also is a very bad yeah. connotation do, do you think that could, that seal that seal know? that imprimatur gave you a more definitive voice did it seem to quiet a lot of the the, the counter dissenters. dissenters or the crosstalk and the and the end uh, yes and no. I mean, I think it definitely, there was that impression that I had the authority, but I've never personally approached it from that standpoint. I've mm-hmm. always said, I, I don't work for WizKids. I'm not actually the designer of the game. Everything, all of my rulings, anything like that is is my interpretation. Got it. And I will say that I, I back that up with examples and with pre-existing rulings and because they said this, I feel that it means that it would be this. You know, I, I'm able to back up my reasoning, but I I have been overruled by the WizKids rules forum more than once. <laughs> right. And just to, to clear up any question, I have never actually been on the WizKids rules forum as a person answering the questions, although I have been asked questions by the rules team and some of my phrasing may have made it onto the boards, but Got it has it. never been actually coming from me making these rulings. That That's always been from the team that works at WizKids, that works directly with the designer, and is able to more, more directly get their input on the situations. Lucan talked about pain points. I would say one of the pain points for the playing community is getting answers back from the WizKids rules forum. So when you step in and adjudicate or answer people's questions in advance, I, personally, I want to just say thank you because that's really helpful. I know people get a little bit bent out of shape, and I know there's probably more than one voice, as you said, in the rules forum. So it's probably hard to corral all the cats together to get an answer. So when you step in and just even give a your opinion on something, I think it lowers the. You know, Lucan said that the thing that gets when people get heated is when they don't know how a card should be played. So even having some agreement. Even if it isn't the final agreement, 
while you're playing can help make, as we said, a game more fun to play in the moment, which is, you know, what we're all here for, to have fun playing a game. So thank you for that, by the way. You're saying, like, about your rulings, that you have been overruled by WizKids before, but... One thing that I have noticed over the years, and I think everyone else has too, is that your rulings are remarkably consistent. They always follow the same set of logical beliefs. You you don't let your bias or favor towards certain cards change the way that you view these uh, interactions. And, and when you communicate that, it's always very clear. Even if you disagree with the way it has been ruled, you see the logic behind it. You see where it's coming from. And honestly, personally, in my case, I, I can say, even if I disagree with it, I understand that it's right. I just don't like it. <laughs> and, I, uh, I have been in that situation myself, believe me. Yeah, there, there, was, uh, there have been some uh, very heated disagreements behind the scenes as well with how certain things I feel should go versus how they they actually end up going so <laughs> it is not a uh, an issue that is unique to the community yeah <laughs> well, the, well let me ask you so i mean obviously you're a really talented communicator you've been able to clearly articulate things and you do it in a way that seems non-confrontational which is another skill in and of itself there's an old saying in, in gaelic which is which is literally to be as level-headed and sensible as a judge which maybe doesn't translate well to English because of like, uh, America, uh, duh, our, our judges don't necessarily, <laughs> Judge Judy and stuff aren't necessarily that way. But, you know, can you talk to us a little bit about how to be an effective communicator? Do you have any, does it just come naturally to you or did you develop it as a skill? Where, where did that come from? Um, I, <laughs> there's books and books and books on being an effective communicator that can probably <laughs> do a lot better <laughs> job than I can in a, a brief podcast. But again, it, it goes down for me to wanting to understand why, why things are the way they are. And that's why I've liked digging into the rules and trying to understand that. And I feel that most people want to know why uh, something is the way that it is. And, you know, they may not spend the, the time and effort to dig down into it as much, but if you can explain something, not just word of God, fiat, this is the way that it is because I say it's the way that it is, mm -hmm. but if you can help them to to understand why, at least a brief reasoning that, that will make sense to them, that will get your point across much better than just saying, this is the way that it is because it's the way that it is. It's, yeah. it's giving them that reasoning so that they can take it themselves and be like, okay, so now that I understand why that is, I can I can follow those logical steps. Yeah, that's interesting. And it probably, like you said earlier, may help expand their creativity. Like, now that I know the, how this works, it may interact with this other card in a way that I hadn't considered before or and, something, you know? And writing a really clear explanation for a ruling is something that is, that the proof is in the pudding, because in the early days of the WizKids rules forum, what you'd have a lot is the, all the consistencies that we have now, they weren't entirely clear. So uh, sometimes you'd have a ruling that would just create more questions than answers. But when you have very clear understandings of the precedents for why a thing is the way it is, a very clear linear explanation, potentially nonlinear explanation of why you've come up with your decision, it, it keeps it isolated and very clear. Do, do you have, having been a person who not only has to explain the rules after the fact to somebody who's having a rules disagreement, but also the guy who is helping put text to the rule book and on cards occasionally, 
is there in your mind a difference between doing it post and doing it in advance, being the, the guy who writes the book and literally writes text on cards? Any difference in your mind about wording in both cases or is it, is it stemming from the same place? And is there, I, I don't know if my question's making sense here, but I'm wondering if there's any kind of in your mind distinction between writing stuff on cards and in the rule book versus explaining something after the fact. Well, I think that it definitely is is much, much preferable to have clear card text in the first place. Mm. And that is one thing that I was able to assist WizKids with in, in one fashion is that I would get some cards in advance and I would kind of proofread the text or give them suggestions like, you know, this card here, it seems a bit unclear. I think if this is what you're trying to do, then wording it this way would eliminate some of that. Because uh, as we've said, some of the early card texts were were very unclear and very open to interpretation. And then they had to go and clarify what they meant on the rules forum. And that was sometimes, especially early on, <laughs> yeah. also not very helpful when the answer to a three-page question was no. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so, you know, by kind of viewing it from a player's perspective of if I saw this card and someone wasn't sure what it did, would I be able to explain it? And again, trying to like, okay, so I know that this is something that was unclear in the past. This card interaction I know has had issues. So if we phrase it this way on the card, we will kind of preempt some of those issues from having to be explained later. Got it. An ounce of prevention, right? A pound of cure. A pound of cure. Yeah, there you are. It's like wondering what, what measurement of cure is it? It's more, I know. That's it. Well, while we have you here, I wonder if you would be so kind as to, we've got the Dark Phoenix set coming out around the corner. And, you know, every time we get spoilers of new cards, there's always some questions as to how these cards might interact in the real world, so to speak. And we've already got a couple of those that uh, just might help us, the player base, even if they're not official rulings, they might help us just to have more pleasurable experience while we're drafting this set, which will hopefully be in the near future. Would would you mind uh, answering a handful of ruling issues that that we've already thought, hmm, I wonder how this works? Um, I, I would be glad to do so, but I will do that with the caveat that I have not looked over this set or any of the context and uh, I haven't been following any anything in the recent history so if I say something that's already been overruled then by all means take that much more authoritatively <laughs> than mine I'm, I'm going purely off of the card text that is that you sent me and that you know, how I would interpret that in complete isolation from everything else. Fair enough. Fair enough. So this, again, is Paul's opinion, everybody. So hopefully this will help in in the spirit of, of helping everybody hopefully play on the same page. This, it, this is in, what we're... In, in lieu of a uh, absence of official rulings, this will suffice. Maybe. maybe. <laughs> Perhaps, you know, it, yeah. Take it as you may. Anyway, so the first question was, one of the cards that, that made me kind of scratch my head a, a little bit was the Uncommon Deken Obsessed. From again, this is from the Dark Phoenix set. Now the card may be rewritten, but you know this is a spoiler, so perhaps the text is already clear. But as it was spoiled, it read: While the kin is active, if you take combat damage, you may use an action die from either player's used pile. So, in this case, what does "use" mean? Does it mean roll? Or does it use use the effect? What do you think? Um, if I were uh, proofreading this card, I would probably, again, my assumption on how it's intended to work would be 
use the effect as if you had rolled it. That right. would be, I think, the most logical reading of their intent on that. Another thing that I try to do as well that I haven't done in this case is look at the card in relation to other cards in the set. Mm -hmm. Um, Because a lot of times, you know, it might not seem like it, but they do try to kind of have some certain themes running through the set. And there are definitely situations where the ability is indicative of that character. And, you know, like, for example... Uh, an older set with Ultraman using Kryptonite because, you know, there's there's synergy in the comics between Ultraman and Kryptonite. And so in the cards, they try to recreate that synergy. Right. So it's kind of if you if you know who the character is and what their comic abilities are and, you know, figuring out how that would work with the card text and kind of what they're trying to do. It doesn't always work, but that is something that I try to look at as well. But like I said, just going off the card text itself, I would say use the effect as if you had rolled it. I think that would make it fit the cleanest with other known rules interactions. That's interesting because, you know, there are cards in the set you know, where you can see the potential for an interesting combo. For example, like Moira, a couple of Moiras move action dice from the field to the use pile, from the opponent's field zone to their use pile. So perhaps, you know, Ken could get at them, so to speak. But one of the questions, you know, with Ultraman, for example, you know, his his text was, well, Ultraman is active if a kryptonite action die is used. You may use the effect of every basic action in play. And then it had with no bursts burst immediately. What, if, if Ken is using the effect, you know, like Morph has used the double burst when he does his thing. The old ruling was it always goes down to the lowest rolled face. Is is that what you would do with it? I mean, which action face would you use if, you know what I mean? In, in the lack of any clarifying additional text like Morphs that specifies the double burst, mm-hmm. I think that the default understanding would be the basic card text without any modifiers. Without, so any, without burst. any bursts. I think that would be the the most logical default assumption Okay, cool. uh, without anything saying anything different. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. When I first read this card, it strunk, jumped out at me, the, the Ken one. It, it reminded me of the old elf wizard Paragon Zentarum from the original D&D set. But she was very specific in her text. She said, when assigned to attack, roll up to two action dice from your opponent's use pile and use the actions rolled. And then return the dice. But in that case, it specified roll as opposed to use, which I guess would mean use the effect. And, and what do you think about when you say use? This was the old discussion of use when you use a continuous action die is when you activate it and put it in the field. Do you think that Ken would allow you to use a continuous action? If it was in the use um, pile? Honestly, I can't remember off the top of my head how that <laughs> yeah. how that interaction ended up being ruled. But I would fall back to existing rulings on using continuous action die effects and how those have been ruled in the past. Yeah. Know, wasn't with, that. with like Beholder or Ultraman, you could use the fireball, the delayed blast fireball, but you wouldn't be able to activate it because it would go away at the end of your turn if you're only using the effect. If you don't have like the physical thing to keep on proccing it, I don't remember. No yeah, we'll have to check into that. I will. Future Arge will come back and look at the delayed pass fireball ruling on that. Future Arge here, reporting back after searching through the WizKids rules forum for rulings on using continuous actions. Lucan was right that the relevant ruling does indeed relate to Delayed Blast Fireball, and that ruling is the only one I can find that relates to a character ability that allows using an action's effect 
without rolling the corresponding action die itself. And in particular, the only ruling that specifically tackles the question of using a continuous action die. Anyway, Chris Hankey asked back in June of 2016 about continuous action interactions in regard to the Joker Oberon Sexton, whose card reads, When the Joker attacks, draw a die. If it is a basic action die, you may use its effect as if you had rolled it, with no bursts, and then add it to your prep area. If the drawn die isn't a basic action die, add it to your used pile. The question was, what happens when I attack with the Joker over on Sexton, and I draw a Delayed Blast Fireball? Before we get to the answer, here's the text from Delayed Blast Fireball. Delayed Blast Fireball, continuous. On your opponent's turn, either when an attack is declared or the opponent skips the attack step, deal four damage to all opposing characters and move this die to the used pile. And the Dice Master's rules team's answer was, in this case, you wouldn't be able to copy the action die. You'd still place it in your prep area. So, the prevailing thinking after that ruling was that characters like the Joker or Ultraman or Beholder that allow you to use the effects of actions can't copy continuous action dice. But Lucan might be onto something here in that Delayed Blast Fireball is a persistent effect that carries on past the end of the current turn, and that could be the reason a character like Joker can't copy it. What if it were a continuous action like Chair Smash or Man of Steel where the effect can happen immediately? Would those actions be permissible? Perhaps a question for the rules forum. Bottom line here is use in this case means use the non-burst effect. Without that's having how, like that's how I would rule it in the absence of anything else. Just That's how I would interpret the card text by itself. Moving on to the uncommon... Mr. Sinister. He was the mutant supremacist. He had this global, pay three, ignore target attacking character dies, text until end of turn. So there are a lot of globals in the set. This is one of them. Do you think you can use this global in the main step on a die before it attacks, even though it's not yet technically a, quote, attacking character die? Um, I I think you're sort of answering your own question there. Right, okay. (laughs) Uh, Given that it is not an attacking character die, it would not be an eligible target for that targeting effect. Got it. So it's not like a persistent effect that you can just apply to something and then when it attacks, it it, it wipes it out, right? That's, again, based on the text, how I would interpret it, I think that it has to attack first for you to be able to target it as an attacking character die. And yes, that does mean that it would not do the when attacks effects, but you know, it would be able to nullify any, you know, when damage is dealt or any of those later type abilities. Got it. So folks who are thinking that this is a good counter to the rare Spider-Man or any other when attacks abilities like Venerable Dreadnought or something, we uh, are all very sorry. <laughs> sorry for that. <laughs> you know, all right, great. Uh, um, well, really quickly, I, I just want to add another question in here because it, it seems slightly on the theme of this global. We've touched on it before in the last time you were here, but it's always good to have more clarification on it. When exactly is it like, you know, just having a, a punishment for doing something versus when is it paying a cost? How do you draw the line in terms of wording for, does it have to be a very explicit you cannot do X unless you pay X? Or is it just like, if there is a punishment for having done something, could that be also construed as a cost? What what vocabulary defines the difference? That's a good question, and it's uh, really... 
something that I tried to to word, you know, the globals and stuff when I was helping with the card text is to try to make that as clear as possible of, you know, cost and effects and trying to, like I said, make clear that, you know, you do this to do this. And outside of, of that, I would say, you know, you have to kind of use your best judgment and go on, you know, whatever existing rulings are and, and try to get it as close to those as possible. And again, that's something that has been challenging in the past based on <laughs> wordings and how things have been phrased. And that was one of the things that I tried to, to avoid by, by writing clearer card text on or suggesting clearer card text for certain abilities. Okay, great. Well, I know one of the places that you really cleaned up the rule book for sure was all the stuff about the out-of-play and the use pile. I mean, I think it's fair to say that you were one of the main hands in terms of cleaning that section of the rule book up. And the next couple of questions I have are basically around that. There's been some discussion. I know Double Double and Dice had a couple of questions, and and this might clear up some of their answers too. So one of them, I mentioned her a little bit already in that she might be working well with Deken, and that's the Moira. There's a couple of rarities of her that have been spoiled that raise questions, raise questions about the use pile and out of play and things like that. The first one is the, the common Moira. It's not a dream. And she reads, while Moira is active, when an opponent fields a continuous action die, reroll it. If it lands on an action face, they may field it normally. Otherwise, send it to the use pile. So the question here, I guess, would be, would the die go straight to the use pile and therefore accessible to cards like the Uncommon Deken, or would it go through out of play, also called transition? I could see it going either way, honestly. And if if a judge were to rule it one way or the other, I would not argue with it. Mm-hmm. My interpretation, just based on you know what I would think off my head, would be that since it's the active player is the person who is moving the die, yeah. that most likely because it's the active player that it would go through out of play. Right. That would be my, like I said, my basic interpretation of it, given active versus inactive player. But considering that never actually did hit the field, I could see it going the other way as well. Right. Interesting. Doesn't the fact that it's on an energy face also add further precedent because of the Thanos ruling that you made where if the the Thanos that you name the die, it can't be fielded and every time it goes to the use pile, your opponent takes four damage. The ruling was that only if it was on a character face in the reserve pool and it went straight to use pile, that the four damage would occur because if it was on the energy face, it would have to go through transition just by nature of it being energy. Yeah, I, I could see that as, as another way to, you know, approach that. Like I said, in this, it's, it's yeah, it's it's a kind of a weird one. And I could, like I said, I could, I could see it going either way. My gut instinct would be that it would go through out of play, yeah. given that it's the active player's turn. This gives me an opportunity. I may read the out of play from the rule book. So, uh, just to clarify, this is this is a special area that is not represented on the playmat. When you spend energy during your turn or use an action die, it goes out of play until the end of turn. When it is moved to the use pile, dice that are out of play cannot be interacted with with any game mechanics and will not be used to refill the bag if it runs out mid-turn. Unblocked attackers also go out of play, as well as any dice sent from the field or reserve pool to the use pile during your turn. So from the field or the reserve pool. Really quickly, does that change the ruling where if you have a die on a character face in your reserve pool when you attack, 
it still goes that, straight to use. Let right? me finish. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> interrupted. Sorry. The out of play area does not exist during your opponent's turn, and the energy spent on dice sent to the use pile will go directly there. At the end of your turn, all dice that are out of play are moved to the use pile. Purchased dice are also placed directly in the use pile, along with unfielded character dice after your main step. So that answers your question there, Luke. And any energy spent on your opponent's turn goes directly to the use pile, along with remaining energy cleared from your reserve pool during the clear and draw step. All right, so what about, uh, Paul, what, what, what's your feeling about, like, say, say somebody rolled a continuous action die on the action face and then chose not to field it. Would that go to out of play at the end of the main step or do you think it would go to you directly to use would it be would you treat it like a character or is it because it's an action it might go through out of play what's your what's your feeling on that well actions don't go out of play until the end of your turn because you can keep them to use in the attack step characters would go out of play because after the main step you can't do anything with them sure Uh, they can't attack anymore but action dice whether they're continuous or not would stay in your reserve pool until the end of your turn or when you choose to use them. If you don't feel um, them. Yeah, because you know, even if based on the card text, you wouldn't be able to do anything after attacking just by its nature of being an action die, that's where it would stay until the end of the turn. Makes sense. So you wouldn't be able to get out with Deken if, in that case if it was just hanging there. But things that come out of the bag... Like, say, as long as it doesn't go into the reserve pool, you know, according to this, if it's in the reserve... As long as it's not on the table, really, right? Well, this doesn't say that. It says reserve pool or the field. So dice that come from the field or reserve pool will go directly to out of play, for sure. And prep area, too. It doesn't say that, uh, though. What about the dark side ruling? Well, that's what I'm I'm getting at here, Paul. (laughs) So so if it comes out of the bag, say, like, you do create food and water and you pull a die out of your bag... And put it that would go directly to their use pile. That wouldn't have to go through out of play, correct? Based on my memory of the card text, yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. What about stuff that's in the they didn't didn't mention prep area in here. So if something is in the prep area, there was an old dark side global that allowed you to move a die from the prep area to the use pile. What's your feeling on that? Would that um, direct go directly to use, or do you think it would go through out of play? Sorry, I don't have that text in front no, of me. No, it's fine. I'll, I'll uh, pull it up. Top of my head, I would say kind of the the intent of the of the out of play was to prevent you from using the same dice multiple times in your turn. Like right. that was that was the basic intent was to the stuff that you you did something with it on your turn, you wouldn't be able to do something else with that die for the rest of your turn. That's the basic gist, the basic concept of the out of play, which, you know, the Professor X Global had a lot to do with the introduction of that because there was right. some uh, major abuse of that early on. But, you know, that's that was the intent behind the creation of that out of play was preventing you from from using the same die multiple times in a turn. Got so it. if you were to draw a die and not actually use it, not actually get any direct benefit from its ability then it would just go to use. That's fine. You're just it's just a location you're putting it in. So how about the example of so the the two globals that were used with reference to this ruling, the dark side global, which was you can pay one energy, move a die from your prep area to your use pile and draw a die nat to your prep area, and also Slifer the Sky Dragon Global, which was pay a bolt and move a sidekick die from your prep area to the use pile and deal one damage to target player, was being used often with Alfred, so that there would be a die in the use pile to trigger all of his shenanigans and make him close to immortal. That was what it was being used for, but the question then becomes, this die goes from prep area to transition, or does it just go exactly as the text says, from prep area to the use pile? And lastly, 
does this precedent also extend to all dice coming from prep area to use pile? Again, going off of my memory of card interactions and abilities is that when you're moving a die from, from the prep area to the use pile, you're not using the ability of that die itself. There is a different die. That, that die's ability is being used to just move dice around on your playmat. So you're not actually using that die that you're moving. You're using the ability of the die you have active. And Alfred isn't using the sidekick die. He's just looking for its presence. He's only looking to see if there's a die there. He's not actually using that die in any way. He's only looking for its presence. And I think that in those situations where you were listing with the, the moving the dice from prep to use is, again, you're not using them for themselves, using their abilities. You're using a different card's ability, and it just is moving dice around. So then for a more modern example... Clayface, if I were to move a die from the prep area to the use pile with some game text or card text or whatever, and then were to clayface that in, would that then constitute no longer moving it for the sake of moving it, and now it would have to go through transition because I'm trying to manipulate that into energy immediately? I'm trying to remember the exact card text you're referring to, but... Here, let me grab the clayface global. Pay mask. Once per turn, you may take a die from your use pile and add it to your reserve pool on any energy face. Okay, so what, what what would be the question in that then? So if I had a way to, if I was using a card text to move a die in my prep area to my use pile, would I then be able to use Clayface on that? Because I am using it directly. Like, it's not, there, it's no longer being moved for the sake of being moved. It's now being moved for an active benefit to me. Well, that's, that's two separate effects. You're using one card's ability to move it to used which is that ends that ability entirely. Once it's there, then you can use the other ability of Clayface to pull it out of the use pile and do whatever with it. But those are two separate effects that are not, you're, you're using them, it's like I said, it's two separate things that you're doing. Even if you're using it, you know, for one overall purpose, it's still two independent effects. And um, this might be an overextension of the precedent, but would you say that this makes the prep area as much not a part of the table as, say, the bag or out of play? Well, the bag, put it this way, would the bag and the prep area kind of be like one one kind of... Equally divorced. Equally divorced from this out of play situation, I guess is the way to put it. Yeah, or like, or perhaps equally divorced from the reserve pool. No, that's not right. Yeah, equally divorced from out of play, but not equally divorced from the reserve pool. Top of my head, yes. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You know, I'm not sure that I'm taking every possible interplay into account and that's another thing that i try to to think about when i'm making a ruling is what is this going to affect if i say this what 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 effects would culminate from that and so i'd have to look and kind of see you know different cards that would that would affect that interaction and try to try to come up with something that would make all of them function in a way that they're intended to function. Yeah. And, and off the top of my head, I can see that recruit, for example, can, the effect of recruit, can take things from the prep area and put them in the field in a way that doesn't make the bag and, and the prep area equal. But in, in this for this example of moving things directly to used, it seems like from the bag and from the prep area are more often than not safe Identical. to actually do. Is that fair to say? <laughs> <laughs> with that caveat again caveat yeah. that, I, that i'm yeah. not certain of every single interaction mm-hmm. but my my basic gist would be like if you're using one ability to move a die from prep to used 
that that die would go directly to use because you're not using the ability or anything of that die itself. Got it. Future Arge butting back in again to bring up something I should have discussed on the day that seems relevant to this discussion about what distinguishes the prep area and the bag from the reserve pool and the field zone. And that's the concept of rolled and unrolled dice. Again, from the rulebook in the More About Dice section of the tournament rules, it says, Dice are considered to either be rolled dice or unrolled dice, depending on their location. Dice in the reserve pool or the field zone, including the attack zone, are considered to be whatever their face is. If you have a sidekick die in the reserve pool showing energy, then it's an energy die. If you have a sidekick showing the character face in the field zone, then it's a sidekick character die. Dice in the prep area, use pile, and bag are considered unrolled dice, and it doesn't matter what face happens to be showing. They are either sidekick, character, or action dice, depending on what faces they have. Dice always maintain the affiliation specified on their cards. So following that logic, I would argue that unrolled dice, those that are in the prep area or in the bag in this case, can be moved directly to used and not have to pass through out of play. There's some questions still about this out of play area when it's not the active player's turn. Those of us who are been around the game for a long time and played during the PXG era, this makes more sense to us, but I think there's still some questions out there. So while you're here, maybe we can use this to help just clarify. I know there was some questions about this on Double Double and Dice recently, their their last episode, which is excellent. But like for the rare Moira, a strength of foresight, her card text reads founder, while Moira is active when you feel the next man character die with purchase cost of three or more, put a loyalty counter on Moira. And this is the more important part of her text. When fielded, you may send an action die from your opponent's field zone to their use pile. Now, the question on their podcast was, would would that action guy go through transition? But I just want to confirm that since it's your turn and you're sending an opponent's action die to use, that there is no out of play on their side of the table. Because, because just like with turn. PXG, yeah. it, it would go directly to used, right? Yep, that, that's exactly how I would rule it based on that precedent. So in that case, if you were able to deal yourself damage and you had Deken on the table, Deken could actually use that action die. Correct? Well, Deken De- is uh, taking combat damage, so I'm not qu- quite sure how you'd be oh, able to Oh, you're right. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. It's combat damage. I was thinking... Well, I, well, well, hold on, hold on. If you... um, Yeah, how would you, how do you, would you do that on your oh, turn? Okay, well, uh, oh, oh, on your turn. Yeah, um, see, because yeah, it is I, your turn. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Maybe I, I'm not thinking of a way to pull that off on your turn. Yeah. I feel I was, like there's a basic of, action but, die that does that. You take damage from a character die or something. Uh, yeah. There's some basic action. No, I was thinking... It might not be modern. I was thinking, like, of that... Uh, what was the not the Batman, but the Commissioner Gordon Global, where you could deal yourself damage, but it's not combat damage, so it wouldn't work. <laughs> Thank you for for taking that time to help us sort out the use pile transition. At least put some clarity on that <laughs> for me, if for nobody else. Paul, is there anything else? You, well, you have the stage. Being the newest member, the, the the second inductee to to our Hall of Fame, anything you want to say to the community while you while you have the floor, to, so to speak? I mean, I'm honored, honestly. I, I I have been kind of out of the game for a little while. COVID has really made it difficult to to do in person events, which mm-hmm. is something that's really 
an enjoyable aspect of the game. And I, I do appreciate that people are able to do with webcams and online games. I think that's an excellent way to adapt. And I know that that was even the case prior to COVID just because of the physical distance of a lot of the players. Yeah. But, you know, I just, I've had a lot of other stuff going on and haven't been able to play the game or really keep up with it. But the community is an excellent community. I know that a lot of the people that I was friends with are still playing the game and still enjoying it. And, you know, I wish them the best. I wish all of you guys the best. You know, again, this is an excellent community and, even if I'm not directly a part of it anymore, I appreciate the time that I spent in it and all of the people that I was able to play with and interact with. And if COVID were to just magically disappear or something, uh, well, I probably shouldn't use that terminology because someone else said that under not so good circumstances. I guess what I'm trying to say is, uh, are there any circumstances under which you would consider returning to your post? Or at least to, uh, compl- or to, 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 to play, play again. Uh, yeah. again yeah. It's possible. I'm never going to say never. I still have a giant Tupperware container full of dice. <laughs> <laughs> cards uh that's that's not currently looking to go anywhere i'm not immediately foreseeing anything but it's entirely possible that the bug could get me again and i could get back into it like i said i'll, I'll never say never but it's not currently on the horizon that i can see is there any person in the dice masters community whose word you trusted very much and you'd like to pass your title on just to avoid a power vacuum and succession <laughs> crisis in the Dice Masters rules world. Assuming he's still enmeshed in it, I would say probably Shadow Meld, Patrick Barley, would probably be the person that I consulted with the most on mm. trying to, to figure out interactions and and meanings behind it. I know, you know, we were kind of working for a while trying to dig into the, the mechanics and try to work out like a comprehensive detailed rule book on the scale of like magic the gathering where every single little teeny tiny minute step and interaction is is written out and clarified but that was a an undertaking we didn't uh, really get too far on unfortunately that's a herculean task for sure wow but yeah patrick makes a lot of sense i agree i agree well paul we wanted to say we appreciate all you've done we miss you and hopefully you enjoy your stay in the hollowed shrine with David. <laughs> and we'll, we'll, we'll be putting some more guests in there with you guys shortly. So thank you very, very much from all of us in the Dice Masters community. This is really overdue. And we just wanted to take a moment just to, to celebrate all the, the achievements and, and, all, and just say thank you. A gigantic thank you from the community for all you've done. Like I said at the beginning, I, I appreciate the honor. I, I really do. The community is awesome. You guys are awesome, and I'm, I'm very grateful to have been a part of it. Awesome. Talk to you soon. All right. Thanks. All right. Bye. Bye, Paul. Bye. Thank you very, very you. much. So thank you, Paul Kushner, for spending some time with us. And now, if you thought we were done with just one Hall of Fame induction, folks, you're wrong. We've got two today. We're going we're gonna to put two people in the hall today. And the second person is our mystery inductee. We sent out emissaries to Europe, and we were looking for the mysterious DM Retrobox EU. He was the original creator of what we now call the Team Builder on the Dice Coalition website, and which was originally called the... Well, here, 
I think the better way to talk about this is to bring in our, our next guest to the program, who is one of the key team members who has continued DM Retrobox's original efforts. And that is Johnny Lesky, also known as Pink Frankenstein to those out there. Johnny, welcome to the show. Awesome. Thank you. Pleasure to be on. Well, you're the last person I know who actually had contact with Retrobox EU. Can you, A, tell us about who this mystery person is, and then maybe a little bit about why you think they're they're in the hall. We've had a couple of people who have nominated them, so what's your take on the thing? Well, back in the day, and I guess this is like four or five years ago, there was the Team Builder, which was on, as you said, Retrobox.eu, and it was amazing. And you could build yourself, your team, and look at your cards and not have to actually physically look at your cards. You could just do it over. What I like to do is I like to do it when I was at work. And then it stopped getting updated. I think it stopped at Batman. And for reasons I'll explain later, we were very lucky that it stopped at Batman. (laughs) But um, it stopped at Batman and we had at least two or three sets after that and it hadn't gotten updated. And what I discovered, and I don't know why I discovered this or exactly how, but I don't, I'm not really a programmer, but I dabble. And I discovered that the whole team builder actually runs in the web page. It's basically JavaScript and HTML. And there's basically just two files. There's the display, and then there's the data file, which is basically a database of all the cards. I think that's a JSON file, but don't hold me to that because <laughs> right. it's you're, we're stretching the limits of my knowledge. So once I figured that part out, I then decided to see if I could start adding the missing teams to it and just have it for my own personal use. And sure enough, I was able to figure out the coding of the database and add new teams to it. So the great thing that he stopped working on the team builder when he did, which is after Green Arrow Flash and after Batman, is because those two sets brought in multiple energy crossover characters, and flip cards, two-sided cards. And if that hadn't have happened, there'd be no way that I would be able to alter the team builder to display and recognize those types of things. Somebody else might have been able to come along. Anyways, I took the files. I started messing with them. I added all the missing sets. I put it up on my website, frankenstein.com. And then I let you guys know. I was like, hey, I did this. Don't tell anybody. I don't know if he's going to be mad or not. And I actually sent him an email. He had a contact link at the bottom of his page. Probably tried to contact him a couple times. And he basically did write back to me and said, have at it. You know, take it. It's yours. Do with it what you will. I don't play anymore. I haven't played in a year or so. And that was it. That's the, <laughs> that's the last I ever heard and only time that I ever heard from him. So it sounds like maybe he'd get tired of playing or maybe tired of all the data entry. I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of data entry involved in this and hats off and thank you for doing that and picking it up, by the way. <laughs> that's the uh, that's always the fun part is the, and I still look at the team builder and I go, oh, there's a typo there. I gotta go fix that. <laughs> so at that time, the Dice Coalition was just starting up mm-hmm. and I was working with Truby and Michaela at the time and we decided, I was like, hey, why don't you guys take this over and one, get it off my website and two, I don't want to be the sole person responsible for updating this information <laughs> and keeping it in track. And then Truby is the other hero in the in the team builder and he's actually a programmer mm-hmm. and he can actually 
fix things that are actually broken with it that are just typos or mistyped database entries. One of the things that it used to do, it used to be able to keep control. You could put your collection in there and you could manage your which cards you had and didn't have. And it also had a generate your own custom card feature in there. So whoever this guy was, and I, I can't remember what his name was or what his nickname was, he was a really good programmer. That that code is super strong. It's almost bulletproof, and it's just held up really well. Yeah, We took out those other things because we just didn't want to support or deal with those. And to be fair, if you clear your browser cache, you would lose your entire collection and you would lose any teams <laughs> that you saved up, which I just regretfully did the other day. But it's really just an amazing you know, piece of work, actually, in terms of just a very clean piece of code, uh, you know, a programmer that actually had really good user interface aspects to it. I'm assuming that he was like Germanic or, Germanic or some sort of Northern European. It has that kind of real mm-hmm. solid feel to it. And we still use it today. And the game certainly wouldn't have survived online, I don't think, without it. Yeah, for sure. And doesn't surprise me at all that several people nominated him. It was always, I want to nominate the guy who, whoever the guy was who created DM Retrobox. I mean, I use it every day or I use it every week. And probably the most visited part of the Dice Coalition these days. But uh, they're the team builder, it, its roots were from DM Retrobox. So if anybody hears this podcast and they know any information about DM Retrobox, please send it our way because we'd like to actually reach out and talk to the mysterious DM Retrobox and give him a proper salute and thank you. And and Johnny, thank you for coming and telling us all the backside. And thank you for doing all this work and picking up the ball, so to speak, after the fact. I mean, I'm, yeah. glad, I'm glad you've got other people helping you, like Truby for sure, and Michaela. Uh, big thanks to you guys, too. And there's a bunch of other people that help with, right now, that help with the uh, data entry, which starts off as a Google spreadsheet. We've got most of the new DC set and uh, Dark Phoenix in there. So oh, great. Speaking we're, of which. We're going to be ready to go when that goes. When it drops, what's your plan? Are you, are you going to sprinkle that in beforehand? What do you think? Are you going to drop it when it drops? As soon as we or? get all the cards, mm-hmm. as soon as we know what all the cards are, then we'll add it to the team builder. Okay. We do have a secret version that's out there that has the spoiled cards because there was <laughs> a, a game that DM North did where they just wanted to play with the spoiled cards. So I, I added those, but it's it's a hassle to figure out what you have. You know, like you have to rebuild it every time. So we won't release it until we have every card. That makes sense. Like save the extra effort, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And talk to me a little bit about future proofing this thing. You started in 2014, so that is a real testament to how solid this guy's code was. Are are you guys talking about? I know you know it's a huge project, but are you guys talking about potentially we, we this did. file could be, we, be pretty big at this point, right? Yeah. yeah, that if you've if you've noticed over the years working with the team builder, it, it's actually kind of slow now. And on my older computer, it's slow to scroll through to get from IG to AVX. It takes a while. <laughs> right. Luckily, we generally don't need to do that so much, and the search function is so great that it doesn't matter. But there was a problem that happened. When a new set came out, it was Guardians of the Galaxy, and I added it, and everything went kablooey and haywire, and nothing I was doing was showing up, and things were out of sync all of a sudden. I was like, oh my 
God, no, what's happened? Ah. <laughs> Luckily, Truby to the rescue. And when he, with the guy, Retrobox made the original code, there was a limit. There's a number limit in the way that he did the coding for the individual sets. And it maxes uh, out at like 26 or something like that because he probably felt that that would never get beyond that or something. And luckily, we had a true programmer that is aware of that problem and knew what it was, and, and Truby was able to fix that. So that was an example of actually going into the code to fix it. Right now, there's a problem where we don't know how to add different formats. So we have Golden Age, Silver Age, Modern. Mm-hmm. That list, for some reason, whenever we add like a fifth or a sixth format, everything gets breaks. Buggy, and, right? and we don't know why. We don't know why. But for terms of future-proofing, it's pretty... It's pretty good. We always talk about getting in there, but you know that's definitely with programming. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Right. Well, any programmer out there that is listening to this podcast that's good with JavaScript, JavaScript, or what have you, I mean, I'm going to be speaking Greek here because that doesn't mean anything to me. But uh, you know, reach out to the Dice Coalition if you've got some spare time. I'm sure. Maybe I'm speaking out of turn here, but I, I'll I'll bet people could use the help or or at least somebody else to knock some ideas off of in the future. And definitely, like I said, it runs in the browser. You can go in and check out the code and download it and download the database file because it's in the code and you can run it locally. So you'd have to download all the images and that's a bit trickier. But you know, if anybody wanted to do that, we don't that doesn't bother us at all. All right. Well, awesome. Thank you, Jody, for coming and, and giving a little, you know, I know it's not the full picture of the salute of, of the introduction to the Hall of Fame that we would like to give, but let's call it the kickoff introduction, the kickoff induction to DM Retrobox. DM Retrobox, if you're out there, we are sending this message in a bottle for you. <laughs> nice. All right. Thanks, Jody. Thank you. Bye. So there we go. Two inductions to our Hall of Fame. Which you can check out at www.rollandthunder.xyz forward slash HOF for Hall of Fame. We'll be back to talk Dark Phoenix and especially Dark Phoenix drafting and about finally launching the next one big weekend soon enough. COVID permitting, of course. Yes, indeed. Always with that caveat. So until next time, Slangavol! Well, that's the end of Turn 5, my friends, and it's time for the final clear. We hoped you enjoyed today's show. You can find us at rollinthunder.xyz, without a G or an apostrophe, where you'll discover all the links necessary to listen or subscribe to the show. You can also reach us by email at arge or lucan at rollinthunder.xyz. Our theme music was created by Jesse Weiner. We're in no way affiliated with WizKids, other than we love and celebrate the game of Dice Masters. So keep on rolling, August Narlagajia the Lao. We'll be talking again soon with another awesome guest. So stay tuned. Enough said.